0: Welcome to the nationally syndicated In the Oil Patch radio show with Kim Bilotto, broadcasting from the Port of Corpus Christi studios. Get more on the Port of Corpus Christi at portofcc.com. In the Oil Patch radio show will give you an inside look at the oil, gas, and energy industry and how it affects
1: you from industry experts and government officials right here on the In the Oil Patch radio show. And now it's time for me to welcome my guest, Herb Listen, who is a partner at EY America's Energy and Natural Resources Assurance Leader. I'm also being joined by Pat Jelinek, who is the Principal and EY America's Oil and Gas Leader, and Bruce Ahn, who is the Principal and EY U.S. and West Energy Strategy and Transaction Leader. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining me on In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Uh, EY produced a report titled U.S. Oil and Gas Reserves Production and ESG Benchmark. It was a study, and it's a, a compilation and analysis of the U.S. oil and gas reserves and production information reported by publicly traded companies to the SEC and an analysis of certain publicly traded ESG disclosures. This report was a look back from 2018 to 2022 of 50 of the largest companies based on a 2022 end of year U.S. oil and gas reserves estimate. And out of this benchmark study, which was extremely interesting, it reflects a lot. But most importantly, uh, which we're going to drill down into, the companies represent approximately 42% of the U.S. combined oil and gas production for 2022 and serves according to your study, as a bellwether for the industry trends. And so I want to get into that because um, looking at the report, it was very detailed. I, I want to compliment you guys on the report first and foremost. It was, it really is an easy read, but it really does discuss what we're looking at in the future of energy, how it has evolved since post-COVID, through COVID, and what they're looking at. And, and I think what is a really difficult thing to understand rather it's an oil and gas production company and or the general public, is how does climate change, ESG, and making a profit considering regulations, what does the industry look like? And this report really gave a great overview of what they're dealing with. And the report looks pretty promising. So I want to get into that. In brief, we're going to discuss in this report and drill down, oil and gas will continue to play an important role in the energy mix. But efficiency and discipline is one key. We're going to cover that too. Companies are investing in their future, will expand capital budgets, but not at the expense of the returns. And I'm sure the shareholders want to hear that. And then I also want to drill down on the report on the ESG reporting, because that seems to be in flux with regulations that might be coming down the pike and how they're dealing with it. So ESG reporting continues to expand and improve but is primarily driven by a social license to operate. So let's begin with the first part of the report. In this summary, I wanna read just a brief beginning part to help the listener understand how in-depth this report is. So in your report, it says, for several years, investing in the U.S. petroleum sector, especially in the unconventional oil pass, was out of favor, and that has been very truthful. In stripping away environmental pressures and concerns about the intimate peak of oil demand, there was a glaring reality facing investors head on. U.S. oil sector investments are not providing adequate returns. And we remember that time because there's been a lot of discussion about not wanting to invest in fossil fuel stocks, why the return wasn't there and or anti-oil and gas sentiment. The report goes on to say, leading companies in the U.S. sector respond to the challenge with relentless focus on capital discipline and durability cost takeout. This attention to the bottom line and return to investors has paid off, and it is evidenced in the annual EY U.S. oil and gas reserve production and ESG benchmark study. That's what I want to talk about today. So let's begin. First, why don't we start with, in brief, the oil and gas will continue to play an important role in the energy mix, but efficiency and discipline is the key. Let's drill down into that. Tell me why that is important. What did the study come out with that was really important and glaring?
0: Good afternoon, Kim, and thanks for having us. This is Pat. I think as you look at the study, what you're starting to identify is that as much as there's a great sense of urgency around the themes of energy transition, at the end of the day, it's it's scale and Optionality that are kind of the challenges for that transition, and so as you look at the the existing need for economic and energy security with the backdrop of all the geopolitics and, and all the regulations, you still need optionality with those things. And what we started to call out on these is you're noticing that the unconventional producers have actually been able to curb a lot of their actual intensity in the operations themselves, and they're finding new creative ways to innovate and and better produce the 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 wells that they operate. And then at the same time, too, they're actually getting a lot more balance on the capital side in terms of balancing how much they are taking to market versus the global marketplace, what is the the prices that they're willing to get, and then ultimately being much more strategic on the, the operation side in terms of just number of rigs that they're bringing to the field and the likes. So I think that people are being a lot more disciplined and they're realizing that there actually is domestic need that continues to grow and that these assets allow for the balance of those two intersections, just because of how short cycle they are and how much intermittency they can actually manage actively in terms of carbon intensity.
1: How about, can we drill down just a little bit more into that? And in your study, it actually gives some numbers. So, so in the study it says, but more critically is for companies strategic focus and reassuring their investors, which is what the investors wanna know, is that they're improving in efficiency and capital discipline. And you all go into some numbers here. Can we kind of go into those numbers, Pat?
2: Sure. And and I'm happy maybe to take us through that, Ken. This is Herb. Okay. Um, You know, when you talked through, when you uh, went through the introduction, I I appreciate your remarks. Um, You know, we've been doing this study now for over 15 years. And so we've gotten a really good perspective by just drilling in on this publicly available information to help us with understanding some of these backdrops and themes, um, and one of the things that that you're you're talking about is really kind of centered around that the three themes that you started with, and kind of drilling into that. And so, kind of when you get in when you get into the numbers, you know what what we found was that it was best to go back and take our 2022 study results and compare that to 2014 because those years were sort of comparable in terms of oil prices on average. And so when you look at oil prices on average, they're fairly similar in 2014 versus 2015. And then what we did is we drilled in to see how the the results of operations in 2014 compared to 2022 as well. Um, And and what we found was that obviously the higher commodity prices um, certainly helped oil and gas companies in this environment. And um they were able to reach record revenues of about 332 billion based on our study. Um, however, what's more important is that U.S oil and gas independence more than tripled their shareholder returns. So uh, from mm-hmm. about 19 billion in 2021 to 58.8 billion in 22. And to that end, in our 2021 ES, uh, reserve and production study, we actually added, A capital allocation component of that where we wanted to see where is the uh uh, where is the excess cash flow or where is the cash flow going vis-a-vis capital expenditures uh, exploration and development expenditures in other words or to shareholder returns via common stock uh, repurchases or dividends Um, and so one of the things that we found and we can drill into that is is that there was a significant amount of um, shareholder returns this year just proving out that discipline and so that's really you know uh one of the key themes that we saw that ENPs are investing in their future with expanded capital budgets but not at the expense of the shareholder value when you look back and you look at 2014 um, there was a lot of capital expenditures to go and acquire new acreage to go and drill a well to hold the acreage. And there was inefficiencies involved with doing that because you would have to move a rig from lease to lease to lease to, to secure those acreages. But as Pat was saying now, with the scalability of the U.S. onshore drilling, uh, really, um, when when you already have the acreage in place and you can do, you know, uh, multiple wells on one pad, that significantly has helped in terms of efficiencies around. Uh, Drilling costs, completion costs, lifting costs. And so one of the things we saw in our study is that even comparing 22 to 2014, as we stated in the report, the revenues were up 53% uh, 22 to 2014, but the production costs were only up 19%. We also looked at the barrel, the the production cost per barrel of oil equivalent, which is a, a, a standard measure that's looked at in the industry. And what was a really interesting um, uh, component of that was that looking from 2014 to 2022, the production cost per BOE went from $57 a barrel in 14 to about $50 a barrel in 22. Now you think about the inflation environment and the higher costs that we're in between 14 and today, but yet our costs per barrel uh, in our study are quite a bit lower. Um, and and you know, almost 20%, right? And a lot of that's because of the scalability. A lot of it's because of the increased focus on operational discipline, lean manufacturing concepts and the likes. And so this is why why we why we're, we're calling out the theme here around the capital discipline. And at the, but at the same time, uh, being mindful of uh, of uh, of needing to provide the shareholders a return, Particularly after uh, a lot of the um, pushback from investors in uh, 2020.
1: Exactly. And in your report, it says you specifically call it out the sector has learned harsh lessons of past boom bust cycles to improve the resilience to their core business by by displaying significant capital discipline and prioritizing shareholder returns when we return from break i want to get back on this and then i want to move on to the next part of the report and i also want to cover the whole esg transition because that is very very much in play as well let's take a quick break you're listening to the oil patch radio show we'll be right back
3: Attention small and medium-sized business owners, are you
0: feeling overwhelmed with back-office tasks like payroll, workers' compensation, federal regulations, safety laws, employment standards, and benefits? Don't worry, Unique HR has your back. For over 30 years, our team of qualified professionals has been providing people-centered solutions to help businesses like yours navigate the heavy burden of running a business and managing their workforce. We're the PEO with a pulse, and we are just a phone call away. Call us today at 361-852-6392. Unique HR, the partner you can trust.
3: Shale Oil & Gas Business Magazine provides services like print advertising and digital marketing. Our digital advertising services include website, email, radio, video, and social media. Shale also provides specialized web services from website management to search engine optimization and social media management. Visit our website shalemag.com once again that's shale s h a l e mag mag.com to learn more shale is your one stop shop for growing your business pick up the phone today and call 210 240 7188 again 210 240 7188
1: And we're back here listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. My guest today is EY on a report that they released recently, a study. It's titled U.S. Oil and Gas Reserve Production and ESG Benchmark Study. Gentlemen, your report, it was very well done. And I hope to break it down to our listeners. It was very concise. It was good and actually so insightful in the way of timing with the announcement of ExxonMobil and Pioneer Natural Resources. And what you guys called, you just hit the nail on the head with one of the largest ones. And you're, in your report, you're saying 2024 will continue. Is this the biggest one that you guys see or do you see bigger ones coming or something similar? Because this was pretty big. And I know we're not over the hurdle yet because it still has to be approved, but was this the big one? I guess what I want to try to establish is you said we're going to see more of this, but are we going to see more of this of smaller ones or this one was the big one? Or are we going to see a lot more ac- acquisitions and much larger or large as this or something similar?
0: Thank you very much for the time today, Kim. So this is Pat Jelinek with UI. I think what we kind of highlighted last year when you started to see, and even a little bit before, but there's always been an aggregation play in the industry. That's that's at the end of the day, the advantage that onshore US has is the variability to produce. So it, it becomes kind of a core asset that allows for a multi-speed approach to building out your production, which, which I think everybody values with all the, the potential Macroeconomic implications, the geopolitical concerns, all hitting the oil and gas industry and production from abroad that is effectively controlled and constrained at times. So this helps in terms of paint a picture that, yes, more people still value aggregation and value these assets in terms of size of what's out there. There's been multiple. Everybody's gotten bigger. The the people that are still in the market continue to build scale. So I do think we're at that point now where more larger assets are going to come into play and the larger producers are going to have more options to play at that scale. Uh, but I do think that this is US onshore continues to improve their, their ESG rankings. They continue to decarbonize their operations and they have you know paths to monetize that, that that don't leave them kind of obligated on a moment's notice. But I mean, Bruce, as you look at the MA portfolio, what would you say?
4: Yeah. So um thanks, Pat. So this is Bruce Kim. I'd say that um, just adding on a little bit to what Pat was describing there, we do expect to see continued consolidation. And this should actually help accelerate that, even in the high kind of commodity price environment. You're seeing it can get done, uh, the valuation gap can close, and you can still get to a signing. Um, we would expect that others of a similar kind of size might try to do. Uh, you know, similar deals of 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 a size that we're talking about with Pioneer and Exxon. Although if you look at balance sheets, you look at the ability to transact at that level, there's not a large, large universe of those type of you know players that are out there. So when you asked about what we see continued deals at the, this level and this size, not quite sure that we'll continue to see that at that size, but we'll definitely see movement happening in the market. We're already seeing it. Um, a lot of our clients are already Actively involved and have been actively um, involved in, you know, evaluating um, portfolio and evaluating opportunities that are out there.
1: So we've covered that. One of the core things is that the oil and gas producers kind of learned their lesson on how to make sure that they are disciplined in their spending to be able to give a, a return back to their shareholders. But also in this report, you know, there's so much to consider. Companies who are investing in their future, in, in, in the brief, it talks about companies that are investing in their future with expanded capital budgets, but are at the expense of the returns. I think they learned that and we covered that to a degree, but I want to give you guys an opportunity because we didn't completely cover it. Okay, so they've got that down, but I guess the question is, is it safe to invest in the oil patch again? And your report goes into that. So let's jump into that.
4: Hey, Kim, this is Bruce. I'll I'll take that. I guess the easy answer for us is yes. and I think our study proves that out, that it is safe to invest in the oil patch again. Um, You look at the things that Herb was talking about around capital efficiency, operational efficiency, profitability, and then the really discipline around returning basically the best return they can to the shareholders. And You're seeing that even play out in today's market. You look at the high commodity price, oil price, In the heydays, you would see drilling just completely going crazy, everybody trying to make as much money as they could in the moment. But you look at the drilling rate count, it's actually down compared to last year. And you look at our study, our study actually shows that these operators increase their reserves by spending less dollars on kind of the reserve replacement cost. And so what that really points us to us is that they have capital discipline, they have targets around their capital spending and they're able to not only hit those targets, but they're able to increase the reserves that they have on their books and that they're actually, you know, in in ground and, and and, and kind of justifying with their capital spend. And so when all those things kind of point to us, Kim, that it is safe, that they're staying disciplined and they will continue to look at the capital efficiency to deploy the best return back to the shareholders.
1: You're right. Let me read just a little bit of your report. The focus of the industry, even as of late 2014, was on growth and especially on exploration drilling to prove up reserves to support this continued growth story. To be certain, the sector does continue to further expand the resources base and shows that the top 50 companies added 3.6 billion BOE to the U.S. reserves last year with some bulk coming through the drill bit exploration and extension drilling added some 7.5 billion BOE while only adding 5.8 billion BOE were produced, showing that the sector continues to demonstrate organic growth and the capacity to maintain current record production levels for the midterm. And you'll also go into that the focus is strategic focusing on them. It's a really in-depth, great report. I'm trying to tease my listeners to say, go read the report and you'll understand. This is some really good information on showing how operators have really focused on efficiency, on discipline. They learned their lesson and your report talks about the bust cycles and how they really managed to learn lessons. And um, and I really like this report. Let's go back, guys, to the last part on it. Not that the report's over, but the last part of um, the ESG reporting. You know, recently I had uh, an executive from BlackRock on the show uh, and also interviewed Harold Hamm, and and I know you guys are cons- you know a little different type of company than Harold Hamm, whose exploration uh, and BlackRock, but they were coming across in two different ways uh, when we talk about ESG. There's a lot of confusion uh, when we talk about ESG. Uh, some Harold Hamm came from a point that he believed ESG would go away. BlackRock. I'm not going to say what they are doing now. Uh, I, I don't even want to get into that, but but they're pro- pro- from a different standpoint. I'll leave it at that. You guys are the analysis. You, you've done an analysis. We know ESG isn't going away, but to say that it's definitely changing and evolving. So let's start with um, your report. And we're going to have to go to break. So I know we're going to have to cut in here somewhere. But in your summary, you just say ESG reporting continues to expand and improve. But is primarily driven by a social license to operate. Yeah, that's true, but shareholders now are understanding we're not going to get as great of a return if we focus on it in in certain ways, and where there's also discussion that the SEC is also looking at requirements. So, while I know you guys can't really get into speculation and you won't, I just kind of want to get an understanding of what your report is reflecting before and after. Where is it going to go? Where is it at right now? Let's take a quick break. And then when we come back from break, I'll give you the opportunity to discuss that. You're listening to In the Old Patch Radio Show. We'll be right back. And we're back here listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. My guest today is EY discussing a report that they recently released titled U.S. Oil and Gas Reserve Production and ESG Benchmark Study. Gentlemen. I got a little wordy. I apologize pertaining to ESG, but it's quite confusing. And some of the guests I've had on the show in the past come from completely different areas of what they believe is happening with ESG. You guys are an expert in this study. You guys have been studying it. What do you guys think? First of all, where are we with ESG and where are we going to go with ESG and how is it going to affect the oil and gas industry?
2: Sure, Kim, this is Herb and I'll kind of kick it off and then probably let Pat come in and just provide some commentary from a forward looking perspective. Um, just to get into some of the details, I think it's important to note that um, of our studied companies, there was 50 of them, right? 88% of them are already publishing a sustainability or ESG report. Now, that's up about six percentage points from the prior year. Um, and, um, and I think that tells us that um, oil and gas companies are focused on it. Their shareholders and stakeholders are focused on it and it's important enough for them to publish a a report and that trend keeps ticking up every year. I think this was the third year we did the ESG benchmarking and the third year in a row that that trend has increased. In addition to that, 90% of the the companies uh, that we studied reported at least one scope of their emissions. And um, a, a very significant number of them reported um, scopes one, two, and scopes one, two, one, two and three. And so what, what that means is we're, while there's a focus and stakeholders are, are asking for this information, oil and gas companies are are already tracking this information for the most part, and they're reporting it to the EPA, right? So they're already focused on this, and I think the whole movement around ESG has 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 really made them think about what's what's really really material to their stakeholders measure it monitor it and manage it appropriately because if you focus particularly as an oil and gas company on your on your carbon footprint for scope 1 and scope 2 inevitably what that will bring with it many times is is more efficiency in your operations and there's opportunities think about how you can operate more efficiently and more effectively there will be costs don't get me wrong there are going to be increased costs going forward particularly if the epa the current epa rules go forward as they're currently Mm -hmm. drafted that in that oil and gas companies are going to have to consider and bake in as they think about capital allocation and resources going forward but they shouldn't be enough that they're going to prevent the continued growth that we've seen in in 2022. You mentioned also kind of regulatory wise, the the SEC does have a proposal out. Uh, We do not know yet um, what that will look like when it's it's issued and when it's final. Um, But for the most part, many of these companies are already following many of the um, reporting um, requirements the SEC had um, for at least the emissions reporting, although SEC as it's currently drafted will require those uh, re, uh, those um that information to be assured um and many companies aren't getting that assured now so that could be a, a big difference but clearly the you know whether it's California whether it's the international EU um you know regulations you know ESG is is not likely going away the question is how do you take the momentum and what is being required and, and, and use that to tell your story and to help you with managing uh, and differentiating your company and your stakeholders in the most efficient way? And companies that I think, you know, that understand that and that grasp that and that move at it from that angle, I think are going to be uh, more successful at that balance.
0: So I was going to say, and as you look forward, I, I think it's it's been rather unfortunate because I think the industry... The, the truth of the industries and in its ambitions in this space I have probably been completely misconstrued if you look at most of the the major media outlets. Because the reality is the, the industry has been investing in controlling issues like methane leaks and others for a long time. They've been all on their own immense mm-hmm. amount of it, all on their own because they actually are, <laughs> you know, they all want to be the, the optimized operator on these things. So they've brought together competitors to work together, they've created collaboration. I think one of the things the industry is now trying to lean in and lead on is, A, what is truth? What is transparency? What are the metrics, the standards that everybody can be held to so that you can actually have a common identification of a carbon footprint across all forms of scope? And I think the other thing that, that the industry you know continues to try to advocate for is they, they should be held to manage what they can actually manage. So as you look at some of the pieces that they're being asked to report on, consumers use and all the other pieces that it'll be interesting to see how that plays out over time. Cause the, the industry is responding to the consumer sentiment. They are becoming more accurate in scope one and two, they're finding ways to decarbonize and they want the credit for that. And even with some of the new regulation coming out through the IRA and others, when you look at some of the emerging forms of energy, hydrogen as a good one, there effectively have to be standards to differentiate some of these products because people do want to compete in the space producers, will win.
1: I agree with you. We're going to come back on this. Let's just take a quick break. You're listening to an old patch radio show. We'll be right back. And we're back. You're listening to an old patch radio show. My guest today is EY producing a report titled U.S. Oil and Gas Reserves Production and ESG Benchmark Study. Gentlemen, before the break, we were talking about ESG, the reporting, rulemaking, suggested changes that could happen at the Security Exchange Commission. And I want to go back to that because I think that it's not clear to me just how fair and balanced this ESG reporting will be, since it almost appears as though the industry's kind of, or or actually ESG as a whole, the government, is making it up as we go. Not making it up in the way of making it up, but we're doing it as we go, as we learn best practices. But our listeners, a lot of them are independents, and they don't seem to be as favorable to this. Maybe their budgets are not as big as these major operators. So my question is, what does the future hold when we look at ESG for an independent versus a large Exxon mobile Is it going to be fair and balanced to them and their size?
2: So Kim, I, I can I can uh, take take a, a stab at that. This is heard. And I think that it's fair. Our study focuses on the 50 um, largest public public companies uh, based on their reserves at the end of the year. And so I think that if you were to to strip, if you were to do a similar study uh, across maybe just the the smaller or the private independent or large private independents, um, you may not obviously get to the same information. But I will tell you something anecdotally. I mean, certainly SEC rules would not apply to a private company. Um, And so private companies would not have to comply with those rules. Um, Depending on the state that you operate in, there could be some mandated uh, reporting that's already there, uh, an EPA reporting that's already there. Um, But I will tell you anecdotally, I was at an energy transition conference and this whole topic of ESG was being discussed, particularly around GHG, greenhouse gas, mm-hmm. methane leaks, reporting, et cetera. And there was a variety of different CEOs in the room from a multitude of different companies. And there was one that was a, a private independent. The CEO stood up and basically said, You know, look, we do this and we believe in this because we believe that it makes us um, operate better, more efficient, and it makes us more competitive in the long run in terms of, you know, stamping out costs, and then being attractive for potential acquisition. Um, you know, so you never know if what you're, you've got to look at your stakeholders, you have got to look at your strategy, what's your exit strategy, if any. And then all that's got to play into how much you really lean into ESG. And I can certainly understand there could be, you know, certain companies in the independent space where you look at your stakeholders and you look at your strategy and you just need to do the minimum to be compliant. Right. Um, So I think it's going to vary depending on what your stakeholders are, how much you're going to lean in, what's your exit strategy. Um, And so it can vary. And then where you're, what jurisdiction you're operating in, Pat, you might have some views
0: there. Yeah, I I think that's, that's, all well said Herb and I do think as you rightly flagged earlier there are states already working through this and you look at California as the most uh most obvious example but I do think it's there's going to be a portion of this especially on the scope one and two side that does become you know cost to operate for a lot of the producers and I do think that the, the sure. advantage maybe or maybe advantage is the wrong word but I do think that some of the work being driven through bodies like the API to try to build standards and to balance that perspective hopefully will at least buffer some of that settlement and more importantly, drive an honest, honestly consistent framework to assess this going forward. Because again, I do think one of the things that we've observed, and if you look, obviously every uh, molecule is different across the globe, but I do think the onshore U.S. offers a a pretty good story compared to many other producing facilities. Most
1: definitely. Yeah, well, I mean, there is a reason why the U.S., oil and gas producers are actually lowering their uh, admissions versus increasing them. Um, Let's jump on into a little bit more into the study on the oil reserve part. You show an increase in oil reserve, your study, by 7% in 2022. And from what I can see from your graph, it seems to continually grow. Give me a little bit of insight into what the study was reflecting when we talk about oil, and then we're going to go into gas as well.
3: Sure,
2: I can uh, start, and then uh, this is Herb, and um, and then maybe Bruce can kind of add some some flavor. I mean, obviously, this year we saw something that hasn't been done in recent years, right? Where this set of companies that we study deliver both strong shareholder returns, record shareholder returns, as well as organic reserve growth. And so, what we found is that when you look at again 2014 versus 2022 we found that there was a significant decline in the uh, exploration expenses um, that were used to develop future reserves, right? So they went down from $9 billion in 2014 to $2.3 billion in 2022. Despite those capital expenditures going down by you know, seven, almost $7 billion year over year, extensions and discoveries were significant. They added to oil reserves approximately 3.9 billion barrels and to gas reserves, to your point earlier, Kim, about 21.9 billion cubic feet or BCF of gas reserves. Um, and, and as you mentioned earlier, that's both of those figures are in excess of the current year production. Um, and because of that, that, that by itself leads uh, to growth and i will also say part of the reason for the reserve growth right is just the discipline in the production and the discipline capital expenditures the discipline in the development developing uh the wells and drilling but but by its very nature we are using less capital the industry is using you know less capital 7 billion dollars less capital to add extensions and discoveries which are very significant and and and, and and larger than the current year production. And so those were some of the key themes that we saw when we looked at uh, oil and gas reserves um, in terms of growth this year. Hey, Kim, this
4: is Bruce. Just to add on to what Herb was saying, I think it really highlights the industry's ability to find operational efficiency even on the uh, drill and completion side, not just on the operational side. And what our study really highlights is the ability for the oil companies to kind of do a little bit more with less. That's kind of the way I think about it. And you'll see that play out and you're seeing it in their, and it's still kind of the evolution. And and look, outside of the sector, it's not always viewed as a very technologically advanced sector, but those that live it and are in it We understand how much technology and innovation is being deployed in the oil patch every day, and those advancements are playing out in what you're seeing in the ability to be efficient in your drilling, in your completion, and the ability for them to add more reserves, as as Herb was explaining in our reserve report, add more reserves while spending less dollars.
1: And I guess what I want to know, we're going to get ready for break, but we're going to come back and I want to drill down to this. In your report, there's one area it says, in 2022, the, study, the studied companies reported the highest production amount in the study period eclipsing pre-pandemic levels. So in our last segment, I want to drill down into the significance of that. I know we've talked about they kind of learned the bust cycle, but now that we've come out of pandemic levels or you know covid and we know why the production fell off what are you guys seeing in the future let's take a quick break you're listening to an old patch radio show we'll be right back and we're back you're listening to an old patch radio show my guest today is EY, a study that you guys titled u.s oil and gas reserves production and ESG benchmarking study let's get on the topic of so I want to finish out the report we talked a little bit about gas production in your report I'm sorry we talked a little bit about oil production and what your study found let's talk a little bit about the gas part of the study tell me what what your study reflects on the gas side
2: sure Kim this is herb I'll I'll um I'll cover that so, what our study showed for the companies that we looked at was that we started off the year with around 189,000 BCF of proved gas reserves in the U.S. We ended the year with about 196 billion of reserves. And, you know, always a big factor in looking at reserves year over year is production. And we saw, uh, even in, nat- in in natural gas, we saw significant production this year compared to all the other years in the study, about 15.8 billion uh, BCF of production. But w- what caused the increase to the reserves net-net at the end of the day was just the significant amount of uh, ads that were added as a result of the extensions and discoveries, which you know are essentially going to be the additional development likely a lot of the the development drilling uh, you know the SEC does restrict how many years of, of future production you can put in your approved reserves and so you know generally speaking you get another year that you get to add to your um, uh, from 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 your approved undeveloped reserves that you get to add each year plus you get the benefit of actually discovering more resources. And um, and so really a big component of the increase this year was around the extensions and discoveries.
1: Great report. I want to close with, since you guys are experts in this field, tell me, we have been through a lot, uh, the energy sector has, pertaining to prior to COVID, pre-COVID, and then now post-COVID. I guess in closing the show, what does EYC in the way of what did we go through? What did the energy companies go through or the energy sector as a whole and post-COVID? And lessons learned, what are the things that the energy companies need to look out for or are are on their radar, maybe not even look out for, in a post-COVID world when we talk about energy?
0: I I think at the end of the day, if you look at some of the the record years that some of our clients have had. At the end, of, a lot of it is driven just by just commodity price, right? So as as some pivot investments, and then as you have the geopolitical destabilization of Russia, and now you see the conflicts in the Middle East, the reality is it's a dynamic market. And so production sure. creates value from uh, capitalizing on that market. And I think, again, U.S. onshore allows for variability to, to time that market from a physical side of the house. I think what COVID and the, the down cycle helped to further refine for all of our, our clients is that you need to be better at doing more with less and how to maximize the capital. So you look at the innovations in terms of just with how they're working the well, you look at the collaborations with some of their vendors, you look at some of the new ways of creating even contracting, the, the reality is it's an incredibly innovative sector, and it's going to continue to do so. I think the other piece that you're starting to see, though, is a lot more collaboration in basic planning and interoperability with service companies with some of the midstream partners and the like. So you're seeing more and more shared value opportunities in the discussions and the relationships. And you're seeing a lot more. It's not just the consolidation play of building adjacent with with some of the either organic or inorganic, but people really are creating a lot more focus so that they can build physical uh, value just through scale, as opposed to what used to be much of a land play. You're seeing a lot more of an operations play. And so I think all those things paint a pretty compelling narrative for for more optimism in the patch. Bruce?
1: Bruce, yeah, just, I'll give you just,
4: the line. Yeah. yeah, sure. Just to add on, because that really summarized really, really well the lessons learned. And I would say the overarching lesson that is driving all that is really just around shareholder return. They have found out that they need to justify to shareholders why they're investing in them. And so they're showing that capital discipline to show the best return possible to those shareholders. And so you talk about commodity prices, they don't necessarily can't control that. So what can they control? They can control their margin. They control their profitability. They control their capital allocation decisions and just how disciplined they are around when to drill, how much to drill, how much to produce. And you see that all playing out and you can see them being very disciplined, even in today's high price environment and all the uncertainty that's out there around pricing. And so I think the lesson has been learned. Um, we're seeing that in a lot of our clients and our discussions with them around capital allocation. I think we'll continue to see the theme around consolidation because it just helps them be more profitable. And as Pat alluded to, you're not just buying acreage, they're buying reserves, they're buying proven reserve and that can go and be accretive to them immediately.
1: I think what your study show to me was the lessons that they did learn through the efficiency. I think what I want y'all to do is is talk to me about in your study what I saw was that prices don't have to be really that high anymore for them to still make a profit, which is the efficiency. And now they're showing it is there any going back? Is there any putting the genie in the bottle with the shareholders anymore? And I don't know, I'm trying to figure out like we have two minutes left and I don't can't I can't get into anything really meaty but I want to close with something profound out of your report because your report was a really good report, but I don't quite know how to end it in a way that kind of just shows they've learned their lessons um, and they're getting really good at it along with being um, careful with the environment as well. I think they're catering to all the masters. So Bruce, and in, we're in winding down the show, this report, if there is anything that we can close with the show of what the report reflects, what is it that you see overall arching out of the report of what the energy industry of lessons learned?
4: So, so Kim, it's a great question. What we're seeing the overarching theme is that uh, oil, oil operators have learned to walk a fine line. And what I mean by that is they're able to cater to all the different stakeholders and do it in a delicate way and manage that efficiently, whether it's shareholder returns, Whether it's the regulatory agencies and what they want to see, and whether it's those that are uh, actively looking at the oil and gas industry to help them solve climate change and and the energy transition. They're looking at doing it all and doing it efficiently through technology and giving a, a great shareholder return.
1: Gentlemen, this was a great interview. Thank you so much. Your report is outstanding. I encourage our listeners to go to EY and look up this report. It's specifically titled U.S. Oil and Gas Reserves Production and ESG Benchmark Study. It'll also be attached on our social media and SoundCloud, so you can go to the report and click on it. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being a guest on the Old Patch Radio Show.
2: Thank you
3: so thank much. You, Kim. Kim. Thank you, Kim. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch.
5: In the oil and gas industries, you don't just need a workers' comp provider. You need a workers' comp provider who understands your business. That's Texas Mutual Insurance Company. At Texas Mutual, they've created the Texas Oil and Gas Association Safety Group exclusively for businesses involved with exploration and production. That means you'll have access to information and safety resources that fit the way you work. But the advantages don't stop there. As a safety group member, you'll receive a premium discount on your workers' comp. Plus, you can qualify for double dividends. You heard that right. Members can earn an additional dividend on top of the one you receive as a policy holder. It's all part of Texas Mutual's commitment to working as a partner with the businesses that keep our state running. Texas Mutual and the Texas Oil and Gas Association, two great organizations that are even better together. To see if you qualify to become a safety group member, go to TexasMutual.com T-X-O-G-A.